Welcome to the Property Management Mastermind Show with your host, Brad Larson. Brad owns one of the fastest growing property management companies in San Antonio, Texas. This podcast is for property managers by property managers. You'll hear from industry leading professionals on best practices, new ideas, success stories, and lessons learned. This is your opportunity to learn about the latest industry buzz surrounding property management, as well as tips and strategies to improve your business. Now here's your host, Brad Larson. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us here on the Property Management Mastermind podcast. Be sure to check out our website at propertymanagementmastermind.com, where you will find all of our episodes, products, and services to review to include our newly launched BizDev Mastermind offering, which is consulting services for companies looking to hire and grow using a business development manager. You can visit that site at bizdevmastermind.com. In addition, I wanted to announce the Property Management Mastermind Annual Conference going on in Las Vegas, March 234 at the Mirage Hotel in 2020. Visit the website at pmmcon.com. If you sign up for the conference and both add-on seminars, you'll get a 10% discount. I look forward to seeing you in Las Vegas. Lastly, be sure to find us on Facebook to join the conversation of over 6,000 members in the Property Management Mastermind Facebook group. This show is sponsored by the best home inspection software on the market for property managers. We endorse and use Z-Inspector as our software of choice for our team to document home inspections. We particularly like their 360 degrees camera system that produces amazing views of the interior room. Your clients will love Z-Inspector documented inspections you provide them. Visit www.zinspector.com to learn more. Tenants not changing their air filters? Costly HVAC repairs and unhappy owners got you down? Filter Easy is a subscription air filter delivery service that solves this problem by shipping filters directly to the tenant's front door when it's time to change. Tenants actually change them, which reduces HVAC-related maintenance calls by an average of 30%. Filter Easy's no-cost-use solution functions as a profit center to give you back time and money. Call 1-800-308-1186 today to learn more. Hey everyone, in today's episode, I have Nicholas Cook here in studio, and we had a great conversation about some of the, the laws that are going on in the Portland, Oregon, and Oregon area. And Nick comes from that market and just has some really good insight and uh, I thought that was a fascinating conversation that we learned about some of those laws, because I think we all need to kind of pay attention to see when that starts bleeding east to get into some of our markets over here. But interesting, fascinating conversation with Nick, and I think you're going to enjoy it. All right, take care. And welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Property Manager Mastermind Show. I'm your host, Brad Larson. And today's guest, I have Mr. Nicholas Cook coming at us from the Portland, Oregon area. And Nick is in San Antonio in studio. So I really appreciate you coming by. We had a fantastic lunch. Took him to... Amazing lunch. Lupe Tortilla in the rim here in San Antonio. And amazing. Tell us about it. Well, I mean... It, that's good enough. All right, here we go. <laughs> I'm just messing. You know how much I love food and you're going to do that to me. Like, okay, yeah. No, it's fine. It was it was a great spot. I mean, oh my gosh. I had a trio taco so I could have all kinds of stuff. Shrimp, steak, chicken, and one taco. And uh, they don't go small on portions, I'll say that. Yeah, good stuff, man. I really appreciate you coming by the office today. We had a great conversation. You got to see our inventory meeting, which is yes. kind of cool. You got to see how we're running our, our somewhat EOS. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not perfect. We've got some things to improve on, but you saw how quickly we got through a lot of information in about 30 minutes or less. So I that did. was kind of neat. 
Yeah, no, it was great. I mean, you're definitely on point for a level 10 meeting. I mean, a lot of data was being shared in a short period of time. So I found that pretty fascinating and gave us something to aspire to on our, on our side. Yeah. So we had, I don't know, 20 people in there. And we do that every week. That's our every Wednesday inventory meeting. So glad you're here because I really want to jump on, the, uh, do a podcast with you, get on the Facebook Live, which we are doing right now. But the podcast, I mean, we got some fascinating topics here to get into. And so the reason you're here in San Antonio is one of the first things we want to cover. So tell us kind of why you came to San Antonio for the next couple, three days. Well, it's been a, a very top secret mission, but I'm um, actually down here to um, do some training with Culture Index. It's a company that we've actually adopted, signed up for here in the last few months, but um, they have some voodoo magic that they're working and we have to figure out how to read their reports. And so we're going to go through the training, but we're really excited about it. And uh, my office manager is coming in tonight and we'll be in that for about a day and a half. Yeah. So we use the culture index here and that's one of the episodes you can go back and listen to with myself, Krista Peterson and Mark Thompson. And we were showing him, Nick, earlier about some of the hires that we've made. And I think probably four or five of the hires that were in my meeting just today were part of the Culture Index hire, meaning that they took the, the test, we analyzed it, and I did show you some things about kind of what we're doing. We're looking to hire one more person right now using the Culture Index. So I think the training that you're going to see the next couple of days with them is fantastic. You're going to learn a ton. It's legitimate stuff. And it's so deep, it's hard to even comprehend. So I'm excited for you to kind of get into that because that plays into what you talked about earlier, which was the culture of your company. So let's go on some of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we found early on that uh, one of the challenges as we grew and we added employees was having a consistency in message and theme and culture um, is one of those things that, you know, there's a lot of institutional wisdom that happens with being an employee. And that's really where experience becomes a great uh, factor. And unfortunately, when somebody would turn over, they wouldn't have that type of wisdom. So we put together something called the cultural manual or the culture manual for our company. And it's a 125 uh, page document that I wrote that every new hire goes through. And it has 30 assignments in it. And it really takes them through really our ideology. It shows them basically how we view the world, how we view the clients, um, some of the stories that people have learned along the way, and basically that they get to digest uh, early on and just have a sample of what's expected. Also, we talk about um, conflict resolution. We talk about styles of writing. I mean, the way that you write in property management is dramatically different than you do in a lot of other industries, and they don't really teach you that in school. So we've really um, tried to adopt a style, a theme that's consistent, um, and also core values. Core values is one of those things, and I can elaborate on that if you'd like, but probably has been one of the most meaningful parts of really getting deep on our culture. I like it. I hate the word, but you know, I like what you're doing. I've always said <laughs> I, I hate the word culture. I more like the word environment because so many people were talking about culture, culture, culture. It just kind of sure. you know a little bit repetitive, but I we all are doing the same things, no matter what you want to call it. It's this this basically the the environment, if you want to call it that, of what the people are coming into that work with you. And that's providing them a warm blanket of continuity, which means when they come in, they know exactly what they should be doing every day. Uh, they know exactly we're going to have a meeting every week. Uh, they know exactly what to bring for those meetings. They know the reports they got to prepare and have ready. That's a whole big part of it. So now what you're doing with the training with the Culture Index, mm -hmm. I really like that. And there's a couple of reasons why I think it's important is the Culture Index gives you an idea of who you want to hire. And so to kind of put this into actual framework, uh, when you, we do a hiring process, we send you know Indeed and Craigslist and you build your resumes and, and you have a job description that you post somewhere. 
They go into a survey monkey, they apply, then they go into a culture index and fill this out. And so by the time we look at them, we have their application, which is all kinds of eight, 10, 12 questions. We have a copy of their resume and we have their culture index completed. And that's before we even really want to look at them. And we feel we pay enough that we can do that to attract the good talent. And when we look at that culture index, what you're gonna find is your percentage. The percentage is pretty important because as you saw, as I showed you an example today, yeah. you know, you look at the, the the one person that applied and then there's there's four jobs that were listed inside of our culture index uh, database and there's percentage matches for each job. So you can take one look at that and say, oh, that person's a 9% match. Nope, not going to be, not going to work. Oh, this person's like Kristen, who was our last hire on this. She was an 87% match for our business development officer. So we were excited to hire her. Uh, and it worked out, it's worked out perfectly. So that's been, so my point being is it saves you a ton of time. And now this is not a commercial for culture index. <laughs> okay. I'm just trying to give you some context of why we use it and why Nick has flown here from Oregon to actually take two days of, out of his time to train on this, right? You, no one's going to give you this training on the disc concept, sure. but they're going to do this for the culture index. So, all right. I think we, uh, might've beat that up pretty good. And I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about that because, to tie that into one more point, and then we'll move on to something you know different, is Krista Peterson and one of her colleagues is going to be speaking at the Property Management Mastermind Conference in March of 2020, and her presentation is on personality assessment tests to include the culture index, and then you got the disc and some of the others you can name. Drop some yeah. names for me. Uh, well, I mean, so we have Hire Select through Criteria Corp. Um, you know, they've looked at, well, you said disc already. There's a Colby uh, one. There's a Colby one. Yeah. There's also Briars, uh, Myers-Briggs has a variety yeah. of tests. That's right. So, I mean, like, yeah, there's, there's a ton of them out there and, and, you know, shifting through that noise and figuring out what's legitimate, um, can be challenging, right? Because, um, you know, some of it's trial and error, but, you know, we've decided that we're going to pivot towards culture index. Um, we dug a, did a pretty deep dive, you know, really before signing on and um, feel like they're going to be the right choice for us. And just based on the preliminary tests they did for our office, um, I was really impressed with their level of accuracy. And so it's crazy, isn't you know, it? It scary. is. It is. And so, you know, that really helped um, boost our confidence in moving forward because it's not a small commitment. Um, they're not messing around. They know what they're doing. Um, and so we're, you know, going to jump on board because everyone talks about having the right people on the right seats on the bus. And that's a lot easier said than done. Yeah, so it's not just about hiring on that because what they're going to do is they test your entire staff and then they're going to kind of give you a synopsis of what that person is like. Now, you're going to look at somebody, which you probably already have, and say, wow, that's spot on. It's amazing. That drives where you end with end up with that person. Maybe you don't retain that person. Maybe you don't promote that person. Maybe you put that person into a different role that fits them better. But that's going to not only apply to your current staff, but to potential current or, or future hires. Mm -hmm. So I think it's outstanding all around. So... Let's pivot for a little bit. Sure. Let's talk about, uh, this could be a whole nother, I mean, I want to save the Oregon laws till the end. We had acquisitions. Who might you know, have a heart attack if we jump into that. Yeah, soon, exactly. So. Because that that's a whole, <laughs> you, you mentioned five things and I had to go, time out, time out. Let's, let's save that for the episode because, yeah. and I don't want you to tell me all about it at the desk, the desk next to us. I want you to save it for the episode here. So I want to talk about the acquisition side because you had something that just came up with your business that applies to a lot of us here. And without giving too many details, I want to kind of hear it because this is fascinating stuff. A lot of people want to understand the acquisitions more, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. tell us what you feel you are allowed to tell us about what you got going on with your business. Uh, well, we've just been, you know, out there periodically just, you know, kind of shaking some trees, but not much realistically on um, portfolios for sale. And um, our business development manager, you know, had reached out to one particular local competitor a couple times and um, they decided to circle back with us and 
uh, started the discussion of, you know, maybe they, they're looking to transition out of the industry. And they had a couple of different reasons for that, which, you know, I don't necessarily need to get into. I think that they're all solid reasons. But they had a portfolio that uh, we really admired quite a bit in terms of how, how they were operating, the service range, types of clients, stuff like that. Uh, and so they approached us and we've started the process of, you know, really moving forward. I mean, they've actually already sent out notice to their clients that they're winding down their side. They've informed them that we are going to be taking over. Um, and so we basically, you know, are going to be assuming those accounts in about 30 days or so. And, you know, hopefully we can, you know, spend those first 90 days really impressing the new clients and making sure they're happy and, you know, kind of rock them back to sleep after they've been startled a bit by the transition. So let's, let's try to dive into some of this without giving too much information that makes you uncomfortable. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you had a number of units in a range of 150 to 200 units that might be potentially yeah. on the table. Yes. And then you had uh, an opportunity to, to throw down a little bit of cash, yeah. but then finance it over several years. Can you talk us through that at all? Yeah. Well, that's, so that's really, really key, um, obviously, to making a deal work, and it helps limit risk for all parties involved. And, you know, again, the individual you know, selling their company, they really care a lot about their brand, their clients. Um, you know, they built a good, good company. And so they want to make sure that they're taken care of. And what we kind of came to the agreement of was, hey, you know, if we're going to come in and step in and, um, you know, pick up these doors from you, we'd like to be able to do this in a profitable way that makes sense so that we can, you know, operate and not go in the red every month just because we're trying to hold on to these doors. Because um, that can add a lot of stress to the team. So we want to make sure we have resources to have infrastructure to, you know, absorb the new unit count. And so, um, yeah, basically, they, they accepted a, a 10% down payment, and they're carrying back a note for 24 months. And, you know, that's one of those things that we have an attrition clause. So, you know, we're both taking a little risk there, right? After a period of time, um, I'm going to be on the hook or our company's going to be on the hook for, you know, paying out those contracts regardless. But, you know, in the meantime, we're going to have a lot of, um, you know, shared vision and a shared goal. And they're giving us the flexibility because they have the capability of doing it. And frankly, you know, there's a lot of reasons to carry back paper. There can be tax reasons, mm-hmm. um, all kinds of stuff. But it just... It really worked out well. And, you know, again, I think that the values that they have and that we have are very much in alignment, which has allowed us to kind of get to a good, you know, medium that works for both of us. And uh, how did you take that? What was your initial reaction? Okay. And I want to tie this into a couple different things with uh, things that we've talked about already. Yeah. What was kind of your initial first step? Well, I mean, I think that really the first step was to... um, you know, basically sit down with the two owners because it's a face to face. Yeah, face to face. And we, you know, basically wanted to just find out what was going on. You know, what was the, the tipping point here? Why are they looking to transition? And also understand what time frame they're looking to transition in. Because if this is something they're trying to do in 30 days versus maybe next year, totally different structure, different game plan. So I really wanted to kind of understand, okay. You know, what, are you, what, are, what is your driving force here? What's motivating you? And when are you looking to make this change? And once we kind of got on the same page about that, then we started looking at, you know, okay, how many units do you have? Where are those units located? Okay, now what kind of rents are those units earning? Fee structure that you have in place? Okay, and looking at then essentially the revenue being generated from the portfolio and, you know, us doing some internal calculations to evaluate what that was worth to us. Okay, so that's the first step. Second step is, do you lawyer up? Question mark. So, I mean, what we've done at this point is the seller has had an attorney draft a contract for both of us. Um, you know, I've read a lot of contracts over the last 12, 13, whatever years. 
and um, feel pretty comfortable with a lot of that stuff. I looked at the contract. I read through it. There was nothing in there that I didn't understand that didn't really seem straightforward. Sure, there might have been like one or two tiny things there that we could have buttoned up a little bit tighter. But realistically, because of the way that some of the other provisions work, I felt like we were covered regardless. And, um, you know, I'm I'm not going to probably have an attorney look at that. There's not really much to look at. Again, we're not buying the company. We're buying the contract. So it's a lot less complex than if we were buying a company. If we were buying a company then I would definitely get an attorney involved. Okay, let's set the acquisition stuff aside for a second and let's talk about adoption. So let's let's assume all the paperwork goes through swimmingly smooth, like sure. perfectly smooth. Cash mm-hmm. is exchanged, the financing is completed. Yep. What are your steps for adoption? What are your steps for, for the operational side? Because that's where everybody starts to kind of forget about, right? They're like, I want to get the acquisition and sure. they get it and then they're like, oh shit, now I got to manage it. Yeah. So I get paranoid about stuff like that. So we actually, that was one of the things that we looked at first when we were looking at feasibility, right? We wanted to make sure that, hey, if we take on this portfolio, that we're not going to look bad as a company and we're not going to embarrass the seller. So we really sat down and made a very deep itemized list in Excel and went through every process we could think of and say, okay, how much time does this one thing take, right? Entering them into Buildium, entering them into Property Meld. Blah, 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 right? And so on. And then, you know, walking all the properties, reading all the lease agreements. So just kind of an ad nauseum list. And we assigned what we thought was going to be a fair and reasonable amount of time to do that for one unit. Then we multiplied that out across all of the units and figured out what the total hours were going to be to successfully onboard the portfolio and take over. And then we've basically broken that up over time. So we broke it up over about uh, eight weeks of, of work and um, feel like it's manageable. All right. So I've heard of no one ever doing that per unit. So tell me kind of what you came up with on an analysis, adoption, integration timeframe for every single unit. Well, based on the side of the portfolio and based on what we were kind of calculating, we felt that this transition to bring over 100 and, you know, plus, well, the final count is going to be 100, between 150 and probably 190 is somewhere in there. But just to basically, we forecasted the full amount um, and we're looking at probably a little over 1200 hours of labor. What was that per unit, do you think? Uh, gosh, get put me on the spot with math Sorry. here. No, it's totally fine. I mean, it's probably half an hour to, well, no, actually it'd probably be about, we probably forecasted about an hour, an hour and a half per unit. And the reason being is we're making a commitment to walk every single unit within the first 60 days. Okay. So that's what bumps up the time. We're probably looking at 30 to 40 minutes of admin time, but to do the other stuff, well, yeah, let's just say an hour and a half per unit is what we're looking at. Okay. Are you uh, assuming their lease agreements or doing new ones? So we're taking over their rental agreements. Um, one of the things that's nice is that um, in our marketplace, there's some standard industry forums and they happen to be using those. So while they don't have some things that we would like to have, which are some kind of internal forms we have, they're covered about 90%. So the paperwork issue is not a big risk for us. Mm-hmm. We're already enforcing those agreements and, and we're familiar with them. Okay, so then come renewal time, you just put them on a new lease. Sure. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of, that makes a lot of things easier. Uh, it would be a little bit difficult for us because we use our own custom lease agreements that, that add in things like resident benefits packages. And mm-hmm. you know, there's certain things that it adds in that, that only we do necessarily that uh, are just difficult to add to a, the standard you know, governmental form or uh, organizational form you might get from an NAR or somebody like that. Yeah. So that was a good good question on adoption because mm-hmm. you, you hear oftentimes of these acquisitions and then especially from the bigger players, right? We've always heard rumors of that. And a bigger player comes in and they're 10,000 plus, 15,000, 100,000 plus doors. They acquire a small little company and then everybody just, you know, bails off of there like minus off a sinking ship. <laughs> and you always yeah. wonder why, why? Yeah. Because they're, Maybe they're so involved in the acquisition side of the numbers and getting the deal 
that they, they don't spend enough time necessarily on the adoption integration portion after the fact. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's the case, but you know, I'm fascinated to hear that you've gone that deep into it. That's that's something we didn't talk about earlier. Yeah. And that's that's a very good kudos to you. Now this ties into a couple of things that that we're going to be seeing at the Property Manager Mastermind Conference just on this particular scenario, scenario is one, we're hearing a keynote speech from John Warlow. He wrote the book Built to Sell. He does a Built to Sell podcast. He's doing one of our keynotes. And this is exactly the kind of stuff that he has done for a decade. You know, analyzing companies that have bought, sold each other and how the deal works out and how it works out for all parties, kind of the pitfalls that you may have to watch out for. So we're going to be hearing from him on this side. Then on the other part of this, Matt Whitaker from GK Houses, who's done a number of acquisitions, uh, more than five, he's going to be giving us an uh, what we call uh, a playbook for the unexpected acquisition. So I'm not saying you were unexpecting this because you, are, you were doing some marketing, but a lot of us assume that, we talked about this earlier, is, is that you're going to be standing at a buffet line somewhere and the property manager company owner next to you says, hey, do you want to buy my company in a year? I'm getting ready to retire. And you're like, whoa, that just dropped in my lap. I don't even know what to yeah. do yet. And so Matt's going to be giving us a playbook <clears> for that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's one of those things you kind of always have to be ready. Uh, it, it did for us was to a degree of surprise. I mean, I actually had been, had recently, uh, I should say, put in a lot of capital into an apartment development. Um, and so a lot of my attention has been focused on raising capital, investing there. And so when this, you know, landed on my plate, I was like, Oh, I don't know if this is great timing, but then as I stepped back and started to look at it and we started working out terms and we started you know, really understanding the portfolio, then it did make sense. And we saw that this was going to be actually something we could do and uh, work, would work out really well. Property Meld is made for maintenance work automation. Property Meld will work to schedule, remind, verify completion and follow up with your residents automatically while providing the best in class communication system for your ease of use, your vendors and your tenants. Begin reducing maintenance coordination time and increasing tenant satisfaction today. Learn more at propertymeld.com. Good stuff. So I want to uh, transition a little bit to talk about your market specific uh, in Oregon. So you're in Portland, Oregon, and then you're expanding into uh, Vancouver, Washington. Yes. Okay. So before we even get into the weirdness of what's going on out there, What is your licensing requirements for having to work in two different states? Uh, well, so in Washington, they have some reciprocity with Oregon's license on a federal level. So I did have to go in and um, get licensed there separately, take a bunch of you know educational credits and then test for a broker's license. And then I had to test for the designated broker's license or managing broker's license. So it took a few, you know, probably three to five months to get through all that stuff because I was kind of doing it at my own pace. But uh, in any case, I mean, there's definitely two licenses because there's two different sets of laws. You have two different, um, you know, agencies, right? You have the Oregon Real Estate Agency and then you have the Department of Licensing in Washington. And then, you know, the thing that's kind of interesting in Washington that we don't have in Oregon is sales tax. So, you know, there's a lot of other things to kind of just figure out, but um, they're right across the river and there's a lot of reasons to go into that market. Vancouver's growing, the rents are rising. Um, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense and it's gonna allow us to serve our clients better who have properties in both states. That's pretty cool stuff. Uh, it's fascinating because there are a bunch of markets like that. Let's, for example, you might have Kansas City. Yeah, mm-hmm. Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas. Yep. And you know they're right across the river from each other. They're one big giant city if you really look at it, but they have distinct licensing requirements. And so it always brings up that first challenge is how do you get through the, uh, uh, Tim Melton would call the licensing gymnastics. All right, so I want to talk more about Oregon and 
we're going to have to talk several levels, okay? <laughs> and, our, and the reason yeah. I bring this up is a lot of folks are going to be fascinated by hearing about this because they don't have any idea uh, of what these are. If you're coming from, you know, a red state like Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, you know, some of the, the ones along the eastern seaboard, the Midwest, they hear stuff going on out west. You're like, ah, whatever. That, 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 that can't be true. You know, they, they say that can't be true. But you're yeah. going to give us some firsthand accounting of what's going on. And this is not a complaint session, okay? No, yeah. Because everything that happens out there might create an opportunity for property management companies. So the more legislation, the more registration uh, regulations that you have to follow doesn't necessarily hamstring you. It more along the line creates an opportunity. So be, a, be an optimist here, folks. You know, look at the bright side. Maybe it creates a really good opportunity for you. Now, let's get into it. So Talk to me about some of the Oregon laws we had. You know, you started to talk about, you know, screening and rental registrations. I mean, let's just kind of give me a synopsis of what goes on just in the Portland market. Okay. Well, I mean, in the Portland market, I mean, so over the last 24 months, we've seen some pretty dramatic changes. And the thing about Portland is Portland largely politically controls the entire state. So what happens is you get things that are tested out in Portland, and then the legislature says, oh, that looks good. And they decide to try to adopt some version of that. Um, and because the Democrats have a supermajority in the House and the Senate and the governor, um, they're getting through a lot of less legislation that's not really being vetted at a rapid pace. Um, and so before I jump into some of the Portland things real quick, I'm gonna, I am gonna want to cover what happened in Oregon because this is the thing that made you know, headlines in the news. And that is, you know, SB 608, which basically introduced three major things in Oregon. One, which everyone hears about is rent control. So we are the first state to have statewide rent control. Now, you know, they did kind of cap it at, you know, uh, 7% plus CPI, which makes it about 10.3. However, the concern is it's opening the door to them ratcheting that down year after year after year. In addition to the fact that they aren't, you know, basically protecting you from any downside risk, right? So they want to cap your upside, but not your downside. Um, so that is one thing that's been pretty dramatic. And, Can I and ask a question sure. on that? Yeah. And then don't forget your other two points too. Uh, okay. Yeah. Because we talked about this another episode with somebody, I can't remember who exactly or top of my head, but what, what I feel rent control does is it potentially creates a minimum for rent to go up to. And so I think somebody is telling me this about California. So if you you have rent control at 5% for a fun figure, well, mm -hmm. then every landlord wants to go to 5%. Mm -hmm. And I equate it to the speed limit on the highway. If, you're, if the speed limit is 55, well, almost everybody takes that as you need to drive at least 55. So if your index says it's a 10.3, isn't that kind of like, well, we're justified to go a 10.3% increase every year because that's what we were told we were supposed to do. I know that's kind of a backwards way of looking at it, but I think in real world, that might be a side effect. No, I, th I think that's absolutely the practice. I mean, I think the thing is, is that, um, you know, people are worried that because they can't control their expense side, they have to capture the upside while they can. Because if you get behind in market rents, then you will not be able to catch up. And if you ever think about selling the asset, that's going to have a major impact on value, especially if you're talking about a multifamily building where you have 30 units, you know, and how cap rates work, you're going to, I mean, you could kill, you know, 50,000 to a couple hundred thousand millions, potentially, if you have a large enough building in value, if you're not keeping that market. And, you know, what's interesting is CoStar, you know, looked at a lot of data and found that, you know, rents were kind of rising on average over the last, you know, five years, around four or 5% in the Portland metro area. And, I guarantee you we're going to be seeing rents rise probably more in the 8 to 10% range in the coming years because of not only the legislative changes that have kind of forced this or, you know, mandated it through, um, you know, not allowing landlords to be flexible with the market changes, but um, 
you know, people are wanting to stockpile money to handle the regulations, which we're going to get into, which really has to do with like relocation and things like that. So, but the two other things that came out of the SB 608 besides rent control, one is relocation, statewide relocation. Basically, if the resident is asked, asked to move uh, and it's not for a specific exemption, a reason that they consider to be worthy, um, then the landlord needs to pay relocation. Now, if you're in a city like Portland, that can range from $2,900 to $4,500 for a property. So if you have a three bedroom house and um, say you've uh, been gone for a while and you decide you want to sell it, to get the tenant out, you have to pay them $4,500 just to get them out of the property. So let me clarify that. I'll let you keep going. So sure. when does this, this relocation kick in? So if you have a lease end mm-hmm. and you say, I'm going to non-renew you and make you leave my home, you're correct. obligated to pay relocation? Unless you meet one of the exemptions out of that is absolutely correct. What are some of the exemptions, for example? So some of the exemptions are if you have, if you plan to move back into the property yourself and you've been gone for less than three years, then that's an exception. However, one of the things that they've done in the administrative rules, which is not in the ordinance to catch landlords off guard and frankly seems disingenuous and against the spirit of the rule is that they have to apply for this exemption before their property is rented and before they enter into a tenancy. So if you don't know that little administrative rule, which is not on their website, it's not on the application, then they're going to deny your application. Um, so that would be one example. Uh, another example is you plan on demo, uh, demoing the property or converting it from you know a rental to something else. I mean, there, there's some, some pretty dramatic reasons you would actually need to be able to have an exemption. Um, and so basically, your big ones are if you're moving back in within three years and you follow the process... Um, you know, that's going to be the other one. And the other one is going to be if you're demoing property or if you're in the military and you have to go off for service and things like that. But realistically, there's not much there. They don't want you to have an exception. So to me as a landlord, then I'm going to stick them with a 10.3% increase every year. And then if they don't want to renew or don't want to leave, that's my opportunity. It, it is. And I'll, I'll add one more uh, fun fact to that. So the only reason you wouldn't do the 10.3 is if you're in Portland, because if you raise the rent over 10%, then it triggers relocation. So if you raise the rent more than 10%, and the tenant turns around and says it's too high and moving, you still owe them relocation. Say that again because I about fell out of my chair. <laughs> if you go to raise the rent and it's going to be more than 10%, even though that's within the state amount, that's too high according to the city. So if the tenant says, oh, you wanted to raise it 10%, that's actually too much for me. I'm going to move out. But while I move out, you need to pay me relocation. And again, you're going to have to write me a check between $2,900 and $4,500. And by the way, if you don't give me the notice and write the check and send it at the same time, not only do you owe the city's relocation, which is the only one we've been talking about, but you also owe the state relocation that just went into effect this year as well. Wow. So, I mean, you're talking about writing a significant check uh, to get somebody out of the property simply because... Maybe you need to control your costs and increase the rent because if you've been under market for the last several years trying to be a nice person, now you need to bring it to market for whatever reason. You're, you're in a tough spot. People are out there listening to this podcast like watching a train wreck. You know, that, that <laughs> I can't look away. I yeah. can't believe that's going on in front of me. Mm-hmm. I can't believe what I'm hearing. So to, to, hear the, to, to counter that, landlords are going to go, what, 9.8% every year? 9.9%. No 9.9% yeah. yeah. every yeah. year. And it's like that speed limit analogy again to where uh, I'm capped at 10%. So I'm going to go 9.9% every year, no matter what, because they can't fall behind. There is no catching up if they fall behind. So who ends up paying for this? The tenant. They're going to be the ones getting screwed over on this. So they're going to see a 9.9% increase on every new lease term Mm -hmm. to infinity. And if they don't like it, they can move out. That's when the rents would adjust. 
That yeah. would be the only time. That'd be the only indication of a of a rent being adjusted. Yeah. Um, so, and then the third kind of component of that statewide rule um, is they took away our ability to end tenancies after the first year of tenancy without giving a particular reason or having cause. And cause means they violated a term of the rental agreement. So if somebody lives in the property for more than a year, you are forced to renew the agreement with them unless you have a reason to terminate for cause. I mean, it really boggles our mind. I mean, this is a new thing. It's, it's yet to be seen how it's going to play out. But basically they've said, you know, once they've been in there for a year, then you're in business together for perpetuity unless they decide they want to leave. So that, that just makes somebody put a 9.9% increase on them every year. Is that kind of the in between the lines what's going to happen? I mean, that's going to be part of it. And the other thing too is every single aspect of that lease is going to be scrutinized and notices for violation of that lease. We will be sending out notices for tiny little things because we need to be able to demonstrate cause if we decide not to renew with someone, even though the issue may be more significant, we just may not be able to document that as clearly clearly as we'd like to, to the point where we could defend it in court. Because a lot of times when you're dealing with um, you know major issues that would cause you to not want to renew with somebody, it's because they're doing something that's probably illegal um, or you know, hazardous to the safety of the property or other people. And so you know, it's kind of a fine line on how you deal with that. So using some of these smaller tactics would probably be the way, but basically it just means we're going to be, you know, chasing people for things that really, you know, should be minor offenses and not major offenses, but we have to treat them like major offenses. So do most of the homes out there have HOAs? Uh, not necessarily. Um, so Portland kind of has an east side and the west side. The west side tends to have more HOAs, but we don't have a lot of HOAs. The condominiums certainly do, and there are some neighborhoods that do, but it's not the norm in Portland, I would say, at large. Because okay. that would be one of the violations I'm thinking of, that they violate an HOA standard. Mm-hmm. And then so you're saying the, you know, it's almost like preparing for a court case to now where you have to send a certified letter making sure that they signed it and acknowledged it and agreed to it. I mean, it's just, I can imagine the paperwork headache. It is, just yeah. Just to document somebody that's screwing up. So what if they pay late? You know, what do you mm-hmm. have to do then? Do you have to get, you know, the Congress to approve <laughs> that they paid late? I mean, <laughs> it's getting a little bit ridiculous, but I'm not, yeah. this is fascinating stuff. I'm glad to hear it because unfortunately for for us on the east side of uh, uh, Vancouver and Portland, anything east of that is going to bleed towards us eventually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's scary stuff. So it'll, it might be proven or disproven to some point, you know, as far as working, but you guys are going to be the test bed for that. And it's, I think you're going to see some negative impacts that you don't even really know about yet. Well, we, I mean, yeah, it's unclear what all the unintended consequences are going to be, but the one thing that we do know is it's going to drive down the supply of housing. I mean, in particular, it's going to drive down the supply in single family because that's where you have a lot of small mom and pop landlords. That's where you have a lot of small uh, investors. And if you scare them out of the marketplace and they go put those mar- properties in the market for sale, because of the price point and the rent to purchase price ratio, those properties, once they leave the rental inventory, they will never come back. They will be too expensive to be rentals and they will be gone. And so if you want to live in Portland and you need to rent, over time, you're going to have more apartments to choose from if we're lucky, depending on what happens with some of the other stuff that they're doing, which is another story. But renting a house will be something that only certain people will be able to do. So this kind of perpetuates the whole cycle. If there's less homes to rent, the landlords can go 9.9% every single year and there's nothing you can do about it as a tenant. Yeah. So it just screws over tenants even worse. And I, I know everything, single thing that's popping into my head all of a sudden, you guys have already been debating through. So what are your, your advocacy groups out there? Who's helping you guys potentially fight some of this? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the the major voice uh, in Oregon is Multifamily Northwest. Um, they take a really active role in both education um, for landlords. I mean, that's really their primary focus and mission. But they've, you know, unfortunately had to take on this position of advocacy from a legislative perspective because of the fact that um, we have so many rules being proposed that have not been thought through and that are being proposed by people with no background in our industry, no background in real estate, finance, economics. I mean, it's just basically uh, they're guessing. They're, they're making a list of things they don't like. And rather than understand why they are the way they are, they're just saying, well, we're going to eliminate those. And so that's kind of where we're at. You mentioned earlier something about screening. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, and to your point, what you mentioned, you know, a lot of the stuff that's here in Oregon, I think it's really important our people are aware of. You will see this other stuff in your states. I mean, these are things that are going to have national platforms um, with social media and with the way that tenants are organized in other places. These are ideas that are being freely exchanged and, and they will show up on your radar. So it's important to cover this a little bit. The city of Portland has voted on and approved um, basically new regulations for landlords when it comes to security deposits and screening criteria. And basically with screening criteria, what they've done is they've said, you don't necessarily have to follow this, what they've termed themselves, low barrier criteria, because they know essentially they're very low barriers. They're saying, you know, even if you, you know, if you don't follow this, then you have to do individualized assessments for every tenant. And I'll go into a little bit about what that means here shortly. But basically what that means is, a lot of subjectivity, a lot of fair housing risk, um, a lot of potential legal expense, and a lot of lack of clarity because, you know, screening companies and even the people in our office, I mean, they're not trained in, you know, social work, they're not parole officers. I mean, they don't know human psychology. These are not things that they're really able to evaluate. And, you know, oddly, it kind of flies in the face of fair housing to some degree. But to get to the low barrier criteria, you know, some of the things that they want to do on the credit side is basically, you know, say you have to accept credit scores as low as 500 right? Um, if somebody owes a landlord less than, you know, $500, you have to accept them. Um, they're basically saying if someone's been late on their student loans, you have to ignore that. Um, so the credit thing is, is, you know, just one of those things where they're, you know, dropping essentially some of the things that we can exclude people for. Where it gets concerning, though, is when it comes to income requirements. So one of the things that is fairly common around um, our market, and I think throughout the United States is, you know, three times the rent is the household income requirement for gross income, right? And that's something that probably comes, I would imagine, from HUD, which is the affordability standard of you shouldn't be spending more than 33% of your income on housing. They are mandating that landlords um, have a maximum amount of two times the gross rent. So they're basically forcing us to take tenant households that are having to spend 50% of their household income on housing, uh, which is a concern, right? Because you can imagine what the levels of default rates might be and Sure, maybe that, that low criteria got them into housing, but what about staying in the housing, right? What about the evictions that are going to go on their records? Which is another thing that they've also addressed. So we get into like rental criteria, and basically there's only certain things we can take now from uh, landlord feedback. Um, we have to, we cannot deny someone if, they don't, if we don't actually get a rental reference. Um, one of the things that they've said is that, you know, when it comes to evictions, that if the eviction is, you know, less than X years, you know, I think I believe it's three years, then we need to disregard it, even though the state says five years. Um, and then in situations where the eviction has been within a year, in the event that the landlord got a default judgment merely because the tenant never came to court, if it's been less than a year, then we can't 
consider that as well. So there's all kinds of stuff that are just major red flags. And I haven't even gotten into the criminal stuff yet. So, you know, with criminal criteria, they want us to cap, you know, misdemeanors at three years, felonies at seven years, and look at each one individually and take a look and see if they've been going to, you know, counseling, if they have a good letter from, you know, their you know, parole officer or a community leader. I mean, whatever it is, I mean, they're basically doing everything they can to minimize the criminal criteria. One of the things that's really concerning about the criminal side, though, is that if somebody committed, um, you know, a crime and then they've been gone from your property and you terminated them over that reason, right? And they've been gone from your property for 12 months, then they can reapply for your property and you can't take that into account. Wow. So, this whole thing is just getting really crazy. So that's going to force and push a lot of companies to do the individualized assessments. But then the concern is they want us to look at, well, let's say it's a crime that occurred. How old was the person? What context did it happen in? What has happened since then? You know, all these factors that are incredibly subjective and put us at risk from a fair housing perspective, not to mention the fact that we don't have expertise to really evaluate the likelihood of someone reoffending. And good luck getting a, an opinion letter or a guideline from HUD. Because they're not going to come to you and say, yes, you can approve somebody with X and where it's really black and white, this left and right. They're going to be like, just roll the dice and try. Yeah. You remember that one person that came to a NARPM <laughs> seminar? That, this it's one, hard. It was hard to listen to. I remember a, that. Two or three years ago, it was a NARPM conference and uh, it was the director of HUD or somebody like that. And they did a, a portion of a Q&A and you talk about gray as gray can be. They couldn't really answer a question. And it was just kind of like roll the dice and see what happens. I mean, approve who you want to approve, but then we're going to come in and spank you and fine you and, and take away your birthday. And so it was just, it was very scary and kind of showed that we're really putting our, ourselves at risk in certain ways because we just can't get clear guidelines. I'm happy to follow rules. Property management company owners, property management company employees are rule followers. You know, everything's in writing. We follow those rules to the letter and getting stuff like this that's gray just, just kind of drives us nuts a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing too you have to think about is, especially if you're dealing with a multifamily asset, I mean, part of the landlord's responsibility is to protect the tenants, right? To protect them from from harm. And if we are being forced to put people who may be high risk into the property, where does the liability fall when they harm somebody? That's right. right. Exactly right. So you have to put a convicted, violent criminal into a multifamily apartment complex and he's living upstairs and the person above them is going crazy and they have a fight. Now who's, you know, yeah. let's talk, let's, we could paint that scenario and it just gets uglier the more we talk about it. Let's get into rental registration. Yes. That was one of the points you had mentioned and I wanted to hear more about that. So um, the city, you know, they're, they're always looking for ways to generate revenue because basically what they've come up with is we want every landlord to register their property, which is bizarre because they already know which properties are rentals from a non-owner occupied standpoint. Um, but they want more information. So they want us all to register. And then uh, for having the benefit of you know, renting a property in Portland, they want to charge you $60 per unit. Per right? month, per year? Per year. Okay. Now for multifamily, that's a pretty significant sum. The issue though is they don't know what they're going to spend the money on. That's the problem. Like They don't have a budget where they've said, well, this is how we arrived at this number. And here are all the things that money is going to fund. They don't know yet. So basically they're just collecting revenue with the theoretical intention that they're going to be doing some, you know, periodic inspections of the properties that they decide to view. So are they doing anything for this registration? Are they looking at insurance? Are they doing a property assessment in person? Are no. they doing anything along those lines? No, they're they're going to be mimicking some other cities and basically you fill out a form, you pay the fee and you get a special, you know, probably 
piece of paper that says you can rent there and they'll throw you in the database and it's unclear how they're going to use the data. And the big concern is what if you start exposing information about people? So for example, say you're a landlord and you own a property and they collect your home address, right? And you're a victim of domestic violence and somebody can search a public database and find out where you live. Or if they right? can do a Freedom of Information Act request yeah. and get your home address, that's that's pretty bad. Um, I, I'm okay with some of that to a certain level. And, and you know, this is very non-Texas of me, but I don't mind a home registration type stuff. If the city or county was doing something to the effect of, I want to see your proof of insurance. Uh, I want to have proof that you have smoke detectors and keyless dead sure. bolts in there. And uh, I want to have, I don't know what, maybe not even the third one, but just a couple things might not be bad because they're doing that now with short-term rentals. Like the city of San Antonio does this now with short-term rentals where you got to bring proof of insurance. Uh, They have to have some sort of a walkthrough assessment where even they may not do it, but they have to agree to it. And then they make them post certain things inside the home, such as fire escapes and whatever else. And, you know, they they ask for certain things to get this short-term rental approval. I'm not, opposed to that necessarily for a long-term rental, that's more headache for us, but landlords are going to look at that and say, that's one more thing that they don't want to mess with. Then they're going to start looking to hire a property manager that can do that on their behalf. But one of the challenges we have, I'd love to see cleaned up is getting landlords to get proper insurance. And so this is a, this is a lifelong argument. We always hear all the time, you know, landlords that work with us are supposed to name RentWorks or your company as additionally insured. Yeah. They fail to do that. There's a lawsuit. We have to defend ourselves. They have to defend themselves. And then we have to sue them to defend ourselves. So it's a big nightmare of, of headache that is just all insurance BS. Now, if they had to go through the city to get a registration, it would be forcing them to go get proper insurance a bit more, which mm-hmm. would benefit everybody. So I'm not opposed to that. Uh, it's just, again, the slippery slope of more registration, legislation, restrictions, regulations, that slippery slope of adding more to it just creates more like, hey, what else we can do? You know, I'm a city council person. Yeah. What else can I do to create a bullet point for my reelection? Well, I think the issue, though, is is they don't have a plan for what they're going to use the money for, right? If you were going to come to the landlord community and say, this is really what we need. We need some more meaningful data. We need to measure some things around safety. Here's some concerns we have. That would be one thing. But to layer this on top of the screening criteria and deposit criteria, which we didn't even get into, which is going to add a lot of cost to landlords, to layer this on top of rent control, to layer this on top of relocation. I mean, basically, you've increased the cost of providing housing to landlords substantially, really at record rates over the last 24 months. They need to take things a little bit slower to just see how some of these changes they're making play out in the first place. I mean, they're doing this in the midst of a housing crisis. And the biggest issue is, you know who's going to pay the $60 at the end of the day? Tenant. Yes, exactly. So the city's plan and during a housing crisis, which they're unwilling to define what housing crisis means, um, you're going to raise the rent. That, that just seems bizarre and counterproductive and counterintuitive to really what they are preaching publicly. Yeah, it's, it's going to turn around and bite them. Uh, I think the landlords almost will make more money from this. Just kind of thinking about this, if I can do a 9.9% increase every year and that's the maximum, I'm going to run the maximum. Yeah. And uh, if you have a problem with it, well, blame rent control. Uh, if you have a problem paying for the $60 registration fee, that's just going to be turned on to the tenant if possible. Uh, or they're going to bury it in the rent or some other fee somewhere else. Uh, that's just going to be a cost of doing business that landlords are going to benefit from. If the supply goes down because more landlords say heck with it and sell it, 
and more residential buyers come in and buy the properties, that's fine. But you only there's only going to be so much of that. So all that's going to do is is lower the supply, increase the demand. So if you don't want to pay for that nine per, 9.9% rental increase every year, fine, get out. And then they'll take that home from 2000 bucks to 2500 bucks, which is more than 10%. And so they're going to make more money, right? So it, it really is a backwards way of thinking. Uh, I don't want to, I'm not trying to say anything bad about it. I don't live there, but it just seems just from my limited knowledge of just speaking with you today about this, this is fascinating, by the way, it seems counterintuitive, as you mentioned. All right, so let's stop there. I think that's the bad news for the day that everyone's sick of hearing <laughs> about. Let's talk about something really cool, maybe. And I, I posed this question to you earlier. So give me sure. one thing that you've implemented, implemented in the last 12 months that's just been fantastic for you. You know, for us, I mean, it's it's really... I would say it comes down to culture. I think developing the culture has been one of the most important things and really getting clear on core values. It makes it a lot easier to onboard um, new hires. It makes it a lot easier for our property managers to make decisions in gray areas because basically they go and look and say, what do the core values say? And am I acting within the bounds of those core values? And if they are, they know that they have cover. They know that if something goes wrong, that we are gonna back them up and stand behind them. So they just need to look at things through that lens. And that's just been, you know, one of the many things that we've done when, in terms of, you know, increasing our culture. Um, we've done a lot of other things. We've, we've implemented a lot of stuff out of a book called Scaling Up. So we do quarterly themes now with, uh, you know, tiered system on rewards. Um, but it's really kind of brought more personality, helped inspire kind of our rocks, which are, you know, basically synonymous with goals. Um, so we basically tie in, you know, like our culture our core values, our quarterly theme. I mean, all that stuff's really made us feel like a company that's all rowing in the same direction and has continuity, which, you know, as when we were smaller, didn't seem uh, either A, as necessary or wasn't really clear how to get there. We kind of had people operating under different assumptions and it'd be like, well, how did you come up with that conclusion? Because that's like totally off base and you've been here a long time or this person's like, you've been here a short time and you know. So, you know, it's a combination of that. And the other thing too is really just getting for us our process is built out. So you can imagine all the conditional statements with all this new legislation, right? Like if this happens and this happens and this happens, unless this happens, because if that happens and it happens, then you need to do this. So we've built out some very robust um, conditional checklists and process street, which is process really street. Okay. Day. That was the software. So you're using process street to do that. Yeah. Okay. So that could be uh, at least a, a takeaway from that is the culture and, and working with process street to document your processes. So when, a happens, you do B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. So that's that's good stuff that you've done. I, I want to quote Jordan Moyla just one second on that, that whole comment you just said. You ready for this? Let's do it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> that's very guttural. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Jordan, I'm picking on you now. Um, that's great stuff. So uh, any other comments about the 12-month stuff that you've done in the, in the last year that you think is just fantastic? Um, I mean, honestly, like for us, we've really just tried to focus and tighten up systems with all of the chaos, with all the regulations that's created a lot of anxiety. And so I would say that getting those checklists kind of built out, which took a lot of time, but now that they're there, again, it helps get people into their jobs quicker, helps train them up. And I would say the other thing is this culture index thing. At, At the end of the day, you know, we've really spent the last also 24 months getting very clear on who we want in certain roles. And that's unfortunately, you know, involves some turnover. We've Mm -hmm. had to push people out or terminate people. And in some cases we've had some people leave, but um, you know, we're really getting very clear on what's expected and having KPIs on a role and making sure we're measuring those and following up on those. Because at the end of the day, those are the things that, um, 
you know, guide someone's performance and tell us if they're doing well or not. Um, and so I would say that these are all things that are kind of ha happening simultaneously. So I w it's hard to say almost like one thing, but I will say that, you know, the culture is what helps people understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and how to do it. Process Street makes sure they don't mess up. And then KPIs, you know, basically gives us a, you know, dashboard on how things are going on a regular basis. So I would say that, you know, those are the, the combination of those things have really taken us from, you know, a good company to to a great company. Frankly, in the last twenty four months, we're always learning. We have a lot to figure out still, but um, we're in the best position we've ever been. We've had a lot of rapid growth over the last two years. In fact, we made um, Oregon's hundred fastest growing, or the Portland Business Journal's hundred fastest growing private companies in Oregon two years in a row, um, and we're pretty excited about that and hoping to do that uh, three years in a row here. Doesn't surprise me, honestly. Knowing what you can do, hearing what you do is good stuff. How good. Are you going to look at the Property Manager Mastermind Conference in a tuxedo? Uh, well, you know, I think it depends on which one I pick out because there's some pretty solid choices out there. And I think just going straight black tuxedo is a little old school. I could keep it classic, but it might give me an excuse to get something special. So, you know, I know you, everyone here uh, appreciates the good bow tie. So I'll, I'll make sure that uh, we deliver. You do have some good bow ties. So I'm going to get a little mushy on you. You ready for this? I want to publicly thank you, Wes Owens, and Peter Hernandez for having a bourbon with me at the PM Growth Summit and encouraging me to get onto the keto lifestyle diet. Since then, I've lost 25 pounds. That's so amazing. Without giving you a bro hug, I just want to <laughs> you know, say publicly thank you. Uh, I want to continue this lifestyle, maybe drop another 10 or 15, but uh, you helped me kind of steer me in the right direction, just breaking it down to where it's easy and I can do it. And it doesn't kill you. And it's just, it's good stuff. So I appreciate that from you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so awesome. Thanks that's for it from here, gang. I wanted to thank everybody for wa uh, watching and or listening to the podcast. And Nick, so glad you were here today. I appreciate you coming on and wish you the best of luck. So take care. Thank you. Choose Seacoast Commerce Bank as your property management bank of choice. Seacoast Commerce Bank specializes in trust accounts and business banking for property managers. One of their best features is a cash analysis program where they can assist in paying your property management related invoices. Contact Allison at 619-988-6708 to learn more. And be sure to listen to the Property Management Mastermind Podcast, episode number 26, about Seacoast Commerce Bank. Are you tired of chasing tenants to comply with having renter's insurance? Insurance Management Group can solve this problem with a master tenant's insurance policy. Keep tenants in compliance with your lease agreement and help protect all parties involved. A master tenant's insurance policy can also add an additional revenue stream to your business. Contact Derek Scott at 918-728-8992 or visit imgadvisors.com. To learn more, listen to the Property Management Mastermind Show podcast, episode number 36. This has been a podcast episode by propertymanagementproductions.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, leave us feedback, and come back for our next episode.